Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Maya Feller is a registered dietitian nutritionist here in Brooklyn, New York. She works with patients who need weight management and those looking for nutritional management of diet-related chronic illnesses with medical nutrition therapy. She received her Master's of Science in Nutrition at NYU and completed her clinical nutrition training at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She's also an adjunct professor at NYU where she teaches nutrition and is a regular contributor to GMA. I'm excited to talk with her today about everything from her favorite underrated veggies to her tips for maintaining a healthy weight. Maya, welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jason. It is so great to have you here. So you see people all over the city, all over the world. What do most people come to see you for? So the majority of people who come to see me come for something called MNT, that's medical nutrition therapy. And they've received a diagnosis usually of a diet-related chronic illness. So specifically diabetes or hypertension or some type of elevated lipid or cardiovascular disease. So it's serious. It's time for... (laughs) Yeah, they've reached a tipping point and they come to me because they realize that there is a way that they can help to manage some of the symptoms and maybe bring some of those labs back within normal limits by paying attention to their nutrition and their lifestyle. It's kind of awesome that people are actually like, making the decision that, hey, food is something I should take seriously here. Yeah. So what trends are you seeing with patients now? So a lot of patients that are coming in, I'm seeing significant increase in gut dysfunction. So people who have like a lot of gas and bloating, people who can't digest certain foods, also allergies mixed in with that, intolerances, in combination with those diagnoses. Oof. In terms of age range, some people are saying their patients are becoming younger and younger. Are you seeing the same thing? I have to say, I have... This is the youngest that I've ever seen a five-year-old with elevated lipids in my Jeez. practice. And that is the youngest that I've ever seen. Assuming there's a little bit of her- hereditary. Oh, yes, it? for sure. There's a genetic component. However, this specific child had a diet that was pretty rich in refined carbohydrates and added sugars. And so I think in combination with the genetics, it was like a perfect storm. Oh, that's sad. It's terrible. Yeah. So... What is your philosophy on food, your philosophy on nutrition? I really believe, and I say this all the time, you know, that when we think about food and nutrition, we kind of miss the mark, right? We know that there's no one size that fits all, but we continue to counsel as if everyone should eat the same way. We don't take people's culture into consideration. We don't take their ethnicity into consideration or even family structure, what they do for work. And so I really believe that when working with a patient, we want to look at the most liberal pattern of eating that supports their optimal health. So I love that we're all individuals. (laughs) I absolutely believe that. You're talking to a guy who gets his labs every quarter and dials in and dials out and does whatever he has to do. Um, But if you had to generalize, what would you say most people would benefit from? Oh, 100% an increase in plants. Yeah. And plants in their whole and minimally processed form. 
like 100%. I know that we're all really busy, right? We've got tons of jobs and, you know, everyone has a side hustle, but we really have to find a way to nourish ourselves in a phytonutrient-rich way. Hmm, I love that. So it's interesting, too, as you also said, you, you talked about culture. Yeah. And so my friend Dan Butner, Mr. Blue Zones himself, yes. just came out with a new cookbook. And what's cool is he put together the recipes from all over the world. And he actually, he, he joked, he's like, we didn't do this in a test kitchen. I like sat in a stool in someone's kitchen and Amazing. wanted to create the recipes that were indigenous to the culture, like came from the region that people were actually cooking with, which made me think of culture because yeah. we don't tend to think of things that way. Right. I mean, it's so beautiful, right? When we look at centurions and people who are living these long, rich lives, one of the things that they have in common is that they have all stepped away from this industrialized way of eating, right? They are not subscribing to that standard American diet that is fast, fast, fast. Also, like what their parents ate, what their grandparents ate, yeah. what's local. Right. Like you don't want to lose culture in this, you know, as we think about food. Right. Absolutely. And so what I'm thinking about now is the fall. It was like really cold <laughs> it <laughs> this past weekend so in New cold. York. <laughs> and so when we think of fall, we tend to think of the immune system breaking down. So in terms of foods for the immune system, what are some of your recommendations? So I love citrus, and I love it coming from clementines, also oranges. I love it coming from lemons, limes, vitamin C, right? It's this great antioxidant that helps to, you know, banish free radicals. And I feel like in the winter months when we're exposed to so many people and so many viruses, getting a little dose of vitamin C is incredibly helpful. I also love fresh raw ginger. Um, for some of the antimicrobial properties, as well as garlic. I don't know if it's because I'm from the Caribbean that, you know, like my grandmother would make these teas with like garlic and ginger. And I just thought it was fantastic. Um, but yeah, so I really like, I still gravitate toward those. I love that you said clementine. Yeah. You don't hear that one a lot. Oh, I'm a he always, my fall table, always like tons of clementines. Clementine, ginger, and garlic. Mm -hmm. Put that. That actually may be good for a drink too. I bet you. So, with the fall, darker, shorter days. Yeah. I also tend to think of vitamin D. Yes, one hundred percent. But what I also say is sometimes people I talk talk with who live in California, Texas, all over the place, like it's surprising that they're also lacking vitamin D. And so, what are your general thoughts on vitamin D? So, you know, there are a couple of reasons why many people are vitamin D deficient. Um, one is that we've all been trained to stay out of the sun. Yep. <laughs> and because vitamin D is synthesized in our skin, you know, and we're not in the sun, we're not doing that endogenous production to the levels that we want. Um, we also tend to not consume foods that are fortified with vitamin D, especially those of us that really live like a plant-based lifestyle. We're not drinking huge quantities of cow's milk anymore. <laughs> 
And that's where a lot of the fortification lies. I also think that the sunscreen plays a huge factor. And for me, actually, I was vitamin D deficient, but I'm very dark skinned, you know, and I live in New York um, and grew up in Massachusetts. So I'm far, far from the equator. And I need probably like 30 to 45 minutes outside before noon without sunscreen. And truth was, it wasn't happening, you know, and I also wasn't drinking tons of milk because I was lactose intolerant and had not switched over to drinking lactose free milk or taking an enzyme. So put all of that together, there's your deficiency. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of our audience would qualify for not drinking a lot of milk. Yeah, definitely. Everyone's drinking almond milk these days. Absolutely. Or hemp milk, right? or oat milk. Or, yeah. I'm obsessed with oat milk. <laughs> yeah, it's good, it's good. I'm an almond milk guy, I love almond milk. Yeah, I've got that too. <laughs> so one of the things, we did a, a Revitalized Supper Series event a while back, and one of the focuses in terms of content was eye health and i found it fascinating particularly uh, my my grandmother who's since passed uh suffered from macular degeneration Mm -hmm. and toward the end of her life like she could barely see it it was just so like she was so healthy in 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 so many ways and moved so quickly but like the eye it just really like when she started to lose her eyes she started to deteriorate you you were talking about macular degeneration and just the things that can support eye health and looking into someone's eyes and it's just eye health in a whole new way that I had never heard. It was so fascinating. So let's talk about eye health. Yeah, absolutely. So eyes really are, you know, the window to your soul. I've seen, you know, in many of my patients who have blood pressure that is uncontrolled, you can actually see blood vessels that burst in the eye. Um, from the pressure just simply being too high. Uh, we also see in sometimes people who have diabetes that it man- you can see that you know a lot of redness and yellowness as well in the eye. All of that is related to you know that internal endocrine dysfunction. This idea of having clear eyes, it's really true. Clear eyes are an indicator of internal health. And when we're thinking kind of about nutrition for eye health, it's really the antioxidant-rich foods that have been linked in terms of the research to the risk reduction of macular degeneration, kind of slowing the progression. Not that it's going to, you know, be the end-all, be-all, but that it slows the progression of some of those diseases. And specifically, we're looking at um, lutein and zeaxanthin. So what are some of your favorite foods for eye health? So, of course, I love vitamin A, right? So carrots. And I know that the research there is like not super strong, but I do like carrots. (laughs) I also like some of the leafy green vegetables that are rich in vitamin K. So, you know, kale and spinach, dandelion greens. I love those as well. And of course, the berries because they're super antioxidant rich. Which berries specifically? I love blueberries and blackberries. No raspberries. I mean, I do like raspberries, but I love those darker skinned ones. So we were just talking before you came on. You were working at the the Park Slope Food (laughs) Co-op this past weekend. (laughs) And so if we were to go grocery shopping with you, what would we find in your basket? Okay, so let's think back to yesterday. I mean, so first things first, I always pick up something that I have no idea what it is when I go to the co-op. I like to pick up something that I'm like, what's this? And I'll just literally try to Google it and make it at home. So there's always a mystery item. 
Usually there's ginger, there's garlic, Jerusalem artichokes when they're in season, always dandelion greens. I think that, you know, they shouldn't be left on the side of the road and they're better in our bellies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They're my absolute favorite. Um, And usually an assortment of mushrooms. The co-op has this incredible selection of mushrooms, and I couldn't even tell you all the names, but sometimes I'll just look at the shapes and say, gosh, that's gorgeous. It's like a trumpet. It's like blue or purple, and I'll just take the mushrooms and put it together with a little bit of sage and olive oil, and actually that's what I did last night, and fennel, and on top of a grilled whole wheat pizza dough. And so you mentioned mushrooms, you mentioned dandelion, leads me to think that maybe there are some other more interesting, although mushrooms are kind of a big deal now, but I'd say dandelion is, you don't hear often, you don't hear clementine often. So what are some underrated veggies and fruits, in your opinion? So I love Romanesco. Ooh. Yeah, it's one of my favorite. It's so mild in flavor, and literally the texture, I think, is incredible roasted. It's also incredible kind of with a little bit of vinegar and olive oil raw and letting that kind of break down that fibrous exterior. I really, I mean, purple Romanesco, white, the light green, I love it all. So you also mentioned earlier that even though people are seeing you for serious issues, serious conditions that you're seeing more problems with regards to gut health and what's, what's going on. What do you say to someone who's not, has nothing super serious yet, but like, you know, something's off with, with their gut health. Any recommendations for them in terms of diet? Yeah. So the first thing that I usually say before even I change the diet is I say, have you talked to a GI? And the reason there's a GI that I work really closely with. And the reason being is because Sometimes it's an actual intolerance, Mm. like to a specific carbohydrate. And if we can get that tested, then we can go ahead and remove it from the diet and make sure that it's not anything more serious. I also say, let's take a look at how processed foods are showing up in their regular patterns. And when I say processed foods, it's not just like hamburgers and hot dogs. It's also like those, you know, fake meats. Like how often are you eating those? I know that we love them, but they're processed. They're not exactly, I'll put it this way. If you cannot eat meat for cardiovascular related issues and you want the taste of that, it is an unbelievable option. Absolutely. Or if you don't eat meat for ethical issues, it is an unbelievable option. But if you are an occasional meat eater, which is me. Like I eat meat like maybe once or twice a quarter. I'm going to have a grass-fed burger. And then I've had the the fake meat burgers here and there. But like it's not like a daily thing. It's more of an indulgence. Absolutely. I mean, is it better for the environment? Unequivocally, yes, 100%. Is it something, as you say, that we want to consume regularly, daily? I think twice. And so you mentioned carbs and, and finding some issues there. We've talked about this in this podcast, but carbs are potentially like the worst catch-all mm-hmm. as we think about macros yeah. because there's so many, <laughs> they mean various right. things. And right. maybe just clear up like some examples and how you view carbs in, in, in terms of the, uh, the, the good and the not so good and yeah. sort of the in-between. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that question. I absolutely, I always say carbohydrate mm-hmm. literacy is a must. 
Right. You need it because otherwise it's just, oh, carbs. Right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Lots of things sit under this umbrella. So let's be clear. All vegetables are carbohydrates, right? Um, There's an absolute difference between added sugars, free sugars, and naturally occurring sugars. Now let's start with vegetables. So non-starchy vegetables, that's your leafy greens, your asparagus, your green beans, those tend to have a lower carbohydrate impact on blood glucose, right? So there's not as much of a spike in comparison to potatoes, white potatoes, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Don't Rice. put sweet potatoes in there. <laughs> um, you know, the, so actually I should probably separate the starchy vegetables from the grains because that's also a whole different story. But so, you know, they're your starchy vegetables, they're your non-starchy vegetables, then your refined grains, and then your whole grains. Um, when I work with people, I like to see the majority of the plate as a non-starchy vegetable. I also love to see legumes that are also starchy show up probably daily just because of all the health benefits that are associated with consuming them, specifically with regard to helping to regulate your blood sugars. I love that. And I give people the option, depending on what their desired outcome is, to have a grain, a whole grain, and I like the ancient ones better. That's just my, quinoa. Yeah. So quinoa, teff, millet, because they're so nutrient rich. Or a starchy vegetable or a legume. So I say that you can choose if you'd like to have one or to play with the ratio of how many of all of those things you have. But I put them into the starch category. What's your favorite legume? I think probably black beluga lentils. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. I also like aduki beans. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I have to ask you about fats. Okay. Healthy fats. Yeah. What are your favorite healthy fats? So that's so controversial, right? So I love... That's why I'm asking it. <laughs> I know. I'm like, ooh. Uh, so I love all nuts. I love almonds. Um, I really do always have a huge jar of mixed nuts in my cabinet. And I also always have tamari almonds. And recently I've been doing spicy curry almonds that I think are delicious. Um, I love them because, you know, there's monounsaturated fats in them that are just so great and linked to, you know, good cardiovascular health. I also love avocados and pumpkin seed oil is one of my absolute favorites. Pumpkin seed oil. What do you do with pumpkin seed oil? Now this is getting interesting. Oh, wait for this. Listen, (laughs) so I got turned on to pumpkin seed oil basically from my German and Austrian friends. And one of my friends takes a full fat yogurt and pours pumpkin seed oil over it as dessert. It is ridiculous. Interesting. It's delicious. Pumpkin seed oil. Can you cook with it too? Or is it more of like a... A finishing. Yeah. yeah, I usually finish my salads with it. Got it. Yeah. What about some of the other oils, if you will? The olive oil, coconut oil, MCT oil. I can go on and on. Yeah. So um, I, in my personal life, I love olive oil. Um, I've got a huge silver canister of it on my counter, shipped from Greece. Um, and I, I use it, you know, in everything. I don't cook with it as much. Um, I cook with avocado oil. Mm-hmm. I don't use coconut oil so often. 
I know that it's a saturated fat, but it's a healthier saturated fat. In my practice with kids who need to gain weight, we use coconut oil and MCT oil, you know, as a great fat to kind of add to everything that the parents are cooking. Got it. So you mentioned who needs to gain weight. What general advice, again, understanding we're all unique individuals, do you have for someone who's trying to maintain a healthy weight mm-hmm. in terms of nutrition? Such a good question. Um, the first thing I say is to really look at how food plays a role in your life. What I found working with my patients is that there's a definite emotional component to eating, and it's often used you know, in different ways. Um, not good or bad, right? But there's an emotional component to it. And for some of my patients, it's just like food is nourishment and that's it. The question is, how can food show up in a way that's both satisfying emotionally, but also supports your overall health? I really do think plants play a huge role in that. Um, Like many of us in the nutrition community, you know, I say animal protein should be the accompaniment, not Mm -hmm. the main, coming from responsibly sourced places. Um, And I really think learning to listen to your internal hunger and satiety cues. Now, I recognize that that's a very privileged thing to say, right? Because if you're busy, you may not have that luxury in the moment to say like, oh, you know, how do I feel? Am I satiated? But that's a huge part of eating for yourself is how does my body feel once I've eaten? What's the reaction after I've eaten? Is it something that I feel energized or is it something that's making me sluggish? And so kind of that discussion, I think, can really color, and it's really nuanced, right? It can color how you interact with food. Um, You know, some of my patients, they want like a lot more specific guidance. And so we really just create these patterns that they can just follow for a certain period of time. You know, and then they get into this routine of, oh, you know what? Oh, I feel great. I've had enough. Or, you know what? I actually feel like I need more. And then playing with it in that way. So you mentioned listening to your cues, your hunger cues. What's your take on intermittent fasting and also the differences between men and women there? Something I, I'd say there are differences. Yeah. And it's something we think about. Ooh, that's another hot button one. (laughs) I love it. So the first thing, and this is what I usually say, right? If we were to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and have breakfast at 7 and go through our day and then have dinner at 7 o'clock and then go to sleep and not get up and eat, that would be a fast, right? So the Mm -hmm. breakfast is literally breaking the fast of the evening. One of the challenges is that we don't interact with food like that anymore, most of us, right? It's like we get up, we may or may not have breakfast, we may have dinner at 10 p.m., you know, we might wait, you know, it's just so dysregulated. I think that following a routine, if it feels good and there are no negative health outcomes of, you know, having a time where you're not eating is absolutely okay. Intermittent fasting is not something that I generally counsel to for my patients because of the nuances, right? So Mm -hmm. how physically active are you? Where are you in the life cycle? What's your hormone? What are your hormones like? You know, there's so much to take into consideration. With that said, 
people who benefit from having a structure and routine, you know, if they know that they're eating between seven and seven, work really hard to get the majority of their meals in between seven and seven, or all of their meals rather. And then we have to, of course, look at the ratio of what's on the plate for those meals, but that can be helpful. It's so individualized. I think mm-hmm. for some people, one, it's like, why are you doing it? Right. So for me personally, I'm interested in the longevity piece and mm-hmm. autophagy. And yeah. to me, it's like, give me an assignment, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not, <laughs> I'm unique. Yeah. I'm weird, you know. And for some people, it, it can it can be a trigger for potential disordered e- eating. Right. It's not one size fits all. And on one hand, it, it, what's tough is, okay, we believe in like listening to your body and internal cues, but right. then you're saying ignore the cues, right. I don't know what to do, and then it becomes nuanced, and then right. it can become dangerous for a lot of people. But Absolutely. And again, it's like, why are you doing it? Are you right. doing it for autophagy? Or you're doing it to, right. to lose weight. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing uh, with weight loss that I think is so challenging is that it's not easy. Right. Right. And then the question is also the why, but it's not easy. And whatever the person engages in to lose weight, you kind of have to maintain. And so then the question is, is that sustainable? Right. So many people that I've talked to who practice intermittent fasting have a hard time coming in and out of the fast Mm -hmm. because it is so rigid and it takes incredible planning ahead. Well, again, I think... I mentioned blue zones earlier. It's one of the reasons why I'm such a fan is it's a lifestyle. Yeah. And with regards to nutrition and diet, you know, like we've all seen the data, like diets fail. Right. Right. (laughs) But lifestyles don't. And I think it's so much of it is just figuring out what works for you, what feels good, what fits within the context of family. Right. Because we're not even talking about the people you live with. Right. If you're trying to do something that no one else does around that, that that can be challenging and so fitting all that in is kind of the only way to go because you're also your surroundings we're not even talking about that like your surroundings also have so much to do with your ability to succeed in whatever nutrition philosophy right. you decide to follow right that is something that i have seen so outside of my private practice before i you know was on my own i worked with a significantly disadvantaged population, 120% below federal poverty guidelines. And access was a major question, right? And I worked so hard to get actually leftovers from the food co-op into my soup kitchen and food pantry because fresh food was far too expensive and people simply didn't purchase it because if it went bad and you've spent $6 on raspberries Mm -hmm. that, you know, are not (laughs) energy rich, well, that's a huge problem in the context of your overall, you know, budget for the month. So I think, yeah, access is a huge question. Do you know Ron Finley, the gorilla gardener? No, tell me. So he, everyone should Google him. He did this great TED Talk years ago. So he's in South Central. And he has this great quote that I repeat often. More people in South Central are killed by drive-throughs than drive-bys. Yes. And then he goes on to say, if I want an organic tomato, I have to drive like 40 minutes. Yep. So his whole thing was like trying to get people to like use like 
grow their own food and their yes. plants and so forth. They grow their gardener. But, yeah. Oh, but it, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but, but it's super, like, more people are killed by drive-throughs That's right. than drive-bys. Right. If I, want, if I want this stuff, I can't even get it. That's right. That's a problem. It's a huge, yeah. And here's the thing that I always say, too, for my current patients, you know, I have patients who still go to McDonald's intentionally because of the convenience. Yeah. And we forget that. I mean, you know, living in New York and, you know. Got access to everything. Exactly. With the Park Slope Food Co-op. I know. <laughs> but, well, McDonald's, all those brands, I feel like they're slowly, like, you know, Burger King as the impossible burger. Yes. Is that a better choice than the regular Burger King burger? It's yeah. an option. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's an option. So, like, McDonald's is testing Beyond Meat. Like, they're, they're getting yeah. there. Totally. They're, they're slowly getting there. Totally. Um, I want to close with being in New York. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, like, what are some of your favorite places to go out and eat? Oh, okay. So, one of my absolute favorite places is Larina in Fort Greene. Larina. How do you spell that? So, it's L-A-R-I-N-A. Okay. Pastificio e Vino. Um, that was like, you know, my best. Um, (laughs) and the executive chef there is Sylvia Barban. She is incredible. Um, she's a huge talent and does such interesting things with alternative grains Mm. and pasta. And she also cooks so seasonally. So her menu changes every season as most places do. But she like, if you go and you have peas, I guarantee you they've been hand shelled. That's awesome. Lorena. Yeah. Lorena and I were not able to say the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's on um, Myrtle. Okay. Yeah. So it's, I love Lorena. Um, I'm trying to think where else I go. You know, I, this is a terrible thing to say, but I cook so often and I enjoy my own food. <laughs> That's a great thing to say. <laughs> so my house, your house. Um, What's your go-to healthy dinner that you make for everyone? It's probably some type of sautéed vegetable um, and, you know, a whole grain. So they're vegetarians in my house. Okay. Uh, and so, as we say in my family, I go with the lowest common denominator, not in a negative way. But, <laughs> you know, I end up cooking vegetarian and vegan the majority of the time. Got it. So do, we're, we're pretty much, eh, we lean vegetarian. It's mm-hmm. so like I would say our go-to is our, uh, like, cauliflower pizza with like smashed avocados and Mm. a little arugula and white truffle oil delicious white truffle oil is still good right oh my goodness so good good. i'm like i'll pour it on anything truffle oil i mean who doesn't (laughs) love truffle oil but it's good for you that's what i was asking about the healthy oils before (laughs) maya thank you so much oh thank you so much for having me 